Now, our Holy Father, we thank you for your word, which you said is a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. Lord Jesus, you said, set them apart, sanctify them in the truth, that your word is truth. And we do thank you that we are so blessed in this nation to have before us a complete Bible, that we can read it and study it free, freely without fear of incrimination or persecution. And we are grateful for that. And it's certainly our privilege to open it tonight to study it. But we don't come just relying on our own wisdom. You told us not to lean on our own understanding. We know, Father, we are to use it, but not to lean upon it. And so we ask for the Spirit of God to be our ultimate teacher, the illuminator tonight, that he would take the word that he gave and bring it to our hearts in a way that we can understand it and apply it. So we commit this to you. We thank you for those who are serving our children this summer in this special uh, season of instruction as they are learning to stand strong in the midst of a godless generation. Help those who are teaching them tonight. May they be encouraged by the response and by those children that find Christ this summer and those that have met him that they would grow. Father, we commit our time to you now in Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you are here for the first time, we are in a series on finances God's way. Section one dealt with the subject of stewardship. What is a steward? When we speak of stewardship, whether it's of our spiritual gifts, our money, uh, elders are called stewards of the church. What we are acknowledging that it's not our church, it's not our money, it's not our time. It's not our gifts, these are God's, and someday as stewards we will give an account for how we utilized what God entrusted to us. The second section uh, dealt with the whole subject of giving, and we uh, saw that God was indeed the first giver, and based on His goodness to us, one, in giving us life, and also in giving us eternal life, that that becomes the platform and the basis by which we give. And we explored a number of things, some of the fallacies in our day where people say tithing is no longer applicable. We looked at the ancient church fathers. We looked at the record of church history. We looked at the fact that tithing was done before the law, during the law, affirmed by Christ after the law, and practiced for 1,900 years of church history, and no one debated it. Uh, we are now in the third section where we're dealing with the subject saving and investing. Uh, to be truly successful in life, we open this section by saying we need to find wisdom. And so we're trying to find wisdom as it relates to saving, about being warned of uh, get-rich-quick schemes, how to acquire wealth biblically. Um, and we are, in, especially in our next session, maybe two, we'll deal with a lot of practical things in terms of how do I begin saving if I'm not. How do I establish why should I want to have an emergency savings fund? Uh, we'll talk uh, probably next time about how to get a will. Do I have a will? Why is that important? What are some things in it that as a steward I would want to have in my will as it relates to the assets God has allowed us to save before we leave? Uh, we'll talk about insurance and just a whole host of practical on-hands issue. Um, but wisdom is the ability not just to know certain truths, but to take those truths and apply them to life. So we are right now looking at five reasons why the Christian should save. The first reason is because we saw that the wise man makes plans for the future. And we looked at a number of examples, and we tried to draw a distinction between what the Bible would call hoarding uh, and versus true biblical saving. And we looked at uh, Moses and the manna. We looked at the parable of the rich fool. And certainly we looked at the ant. We are to learn a lesson. We are to gain wisdom from the example of the ant. So then in addition, we talked about the second reason we should save is because sooner or later we will come on hard times. And so God tells us to plan for hard times, gives us specific instructions for that. And any Christians are unfortunately unprepared. We looked at the example of Joseph and, and Pharaoh, and we looked at the simple fact that here in America, a high percentage of families cannot handle an unplanned $400 expense without putting it on the credit card. And so if we're living in the world's economy rather than God's, 
then we will live like they live and then encounter a lot of the same problems that they encounter. Now, many have come up to me as this series has been unfolding. They said, this is like brand new to me. And that's okay. That's great. That's why we're here. We're here to learn together. Some of us, maybe you're putting this into shoe leather and you are going to take this course to a different level and that you're going to teach your children these principles. What God says about saving, giving, debt, investing, planning, these are truths that you need to teach your children before they leave your home. So I'm encouraged to see those that are even here with their young men and women. Tonight, we're going to look at the third reason here on saving on page 57 there of your handout. And the third reason we should save is because Christ taught us to multiply our talents. He taught us to multiply our talents. Now, let me just say this lesson stands on its own. But to see the full beauty of the text of Scripture that we're going to unfold this evening, you need to come back next week because the, the, the two weeks are very, very much connected. Now, in Matthew chapter 25, in verses 14 through 29, in verses 14 through 29, the Lord Jesus gave us the parable of the talents. And, of course, this parable is not to be confused with the parable of the minas. That's an entirely different parable. It's found in Luke's gospel, the 19th chapter, though there are certainly similarities between the two, but this is a distinctly different parable with a distinctly different emphasis. In describing Christ's return from heaven, because when you're in Matthew chapters 24 and 25, you're in what we commonly call the Olivet Discourse. A discourse is a sermon. And, of course, it's called the Olivet Discourse because it's given on top of the Mount of Olives, or at least on the Mount of Olives. We don't know if he was at the very top, though it wouldn't be that hard to get to the top. Um, it's not a huge hill, um, but it is a large hill of sorts. And it's there as they sit on the Mount of Olives, and I'm assuming they're at least halfway up or if not higher because they're observing the Temple Mount. And, of course, it, the whole sermon is... Um, the genesis of it is a question that they ask about the second coming, not the rapture, but the second coming. As we will begin to discuss in our series in the Revelation, the rapture is a mystery. Mysterion is a truth that was hidden, though present in the Old Testament, but is now revealed. It's a little bit different from our English word mystery that comes from the Latin but a mysterion in Greek refers to something that was once hidden and now revealed. The teaching of the rapture is found in the Old Testament, but in many ways it was hidden. And just a few days after he gives this sermon, he's going to reveal it there in the upper room discourse. He said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am you will be as well. And so Christ speaks of this return where he will take his people to where he is in heaven. We call that the catching up. It's from the Latin rapto. Some people say, well, the rapture is not in the Bible. It's there. It's just in the Latin Vulgate version of the Bible. I don't care what you call it, the harpazo, the catching up. So they're, they're speaking here, though, about the second coming and being prepared for the kingdom because the second coming and the fact that when Messiah comes to the earth, he will rule and reign and we will rule and reign with him if we know him. So that's kind of the context of this parable, three there, in describing what his return will be like and the coming kingdom of heaven. The Lord Jesus in Matthew 25 introduces us, that, introduces us to that coming kingdom when he says this, for it is like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability, and he went on his journey. Now, remember the context. This parable on talents immediately follows the parable of the ten virgins. Jesus would often use illustrations or stories or parables that was based on the cultural setting of the day. And so Jewish people always get married at night. Orthodox people to this day always get married at night. 
I went to a high school that was 25% Jewish, and I got invited to many of my Jewish friends' weddings, and they weren't Orthodox. Most of them were Reformed or Conservative Jews, which are far more liberal, but almost all of them got married at night. So Jesus told a parable based on a night wedding in the parable of the ten virgins, which teaches us that not all will be alert and ready for Christ's return. And so he talks about the ten lanterns, and five have plenty of oil and five don't. The emphasis of the parable of the ten virgins is the importance of spiritual readiness, whereas the focus here is on the importance of spiritual service. That's the focus, our service, and especially as it relates to monetary means that God has given us. While contextually, the parables of the virgins and talents deal primarily with the judgment of Jews at the end of the tribulation. Both parables apply to us as Christians today, as does the entire Olivet Discourse. The Olivet Discourse describes a time frame after the rapture, the birth pangs that are described in the uh, up to verse 14 in uh, that chapter is describing basically things that will happen in the first half of the tribulation. When you come to verse 15 of uh, Matthew 24, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, that's dead center. That's right in the middle of the 70th week prophecy of Daniel, right in the middle of that seven-year time frame. And so then beginning in verse 16, he deals with the second half of the tribulation. And then when you come to chapter 25 here, he's describing in light of the fact that he is coming, we need to be ready. We need to be alert like Noah was, and then he tells these various stories. But he's dealing with Jewish people who are going to be reading this during the time of the tribulation and studying it. They're going to take his advice. Those who are in Judea should flee to the wilderness, to the mountains. Because as we've studied in Revelation 12, God makes promises of protection in a certain section outside of Israel. We call it Jordan today. Uh, that the Jewish people will find. Um, but all Scripture is God-breathed, and there's profit here for us as well. So in this parable, number seven, each servant was given a sum of money described as a talent, which is not. And by the way, I try to make these blanks short for you. There are people who are taking these for credit in our Institute of Biblical Studies. So I try to make it really short so that you don't get too frustrated with me if I'm going too fast, okay? Now, sometimes I just use words like not. Oh, that's a tough one, N-O-T. Or God, and you can take like a zero and put a line through the center of it. And that's the Greek abbreviation for God, theta, the Greek letter theta, which is the first letter of theos. So you don't even have to write G-O-D. You just put a circle with a line through the center, okay? And you'll know that's God. In each, um, each are given a talent, which is not an ability, though this parable certainly has application to our abilities. Technically, a talent, unlike we typically use the word in its primary form today, was not a, a, a coin, but a weight, whose value totally depended on whether the talent was made of gold, silver, or copper. So we speak of the word talent. Oh, yeah, he has the talent to sing, or he's athletic, and it has no such meaning at all in the Word of God. It is a monetary sum. It is a particular weight, and it wasn't in reference to a coin, though you could take your, your weighted talent and cash it in for coins, but it was made of gold, silver, or copper. In this situation, the talent was of silver, because it is further described in verse 18 as money, where the Greek word gureon refers to silver. The weight of a talent uh, could vary slightly, but normally it was around 100 pounds. Normally it was around 100 pounds. Generally speaking, the Greek word talaton, when made of silver, was regarded as equal to 6,000 denarii that would take a day laborer, the average worker in Israel in the first century, or a Roman foot soldier, 20 years to earn. So when even one man is given a single talent, we're talking about an enormous sum of money. We're talking about 20 years of salary for the average person in the first century. Though people debate the exact value because the weight of a talent could vary as much as 10 pounds, 
You'll read some literature where it's in our terminology, 90 pounds or 105 pounds or 100, but generally speaking, it's about 100 pounds. By any evaluation, it was a large sum of money, such that the man with five talents had been given a, a lifetime of earnings. He certainly had a lifetime of earnings. His master, turn the page, number 13, his master distributed his resources according to his evaluation of the ability of each servant, where with greater privilege came greater responsibility. And that's a principle most of you know that runs all the way through Scripture, to whom much is given, much is expected. Though this parable concerns money, one could legitimately apply this parable to the future evaluation of all that God entrusts to his people, such as spiritual gifts, natural abilities, service opportunities in the church, and sharing the gospel. How do I know that? Because other passages of Scripture teach that we will give an account on such things in the future. Though it is significant that he tied each servant's accountability to a monetary sum, because as a general rule, how one handles the material wealth that God has entrusted to him is indexed to how well he serves the Lord in other arenas, and how true that is. People who are sloppy with money typically are sloppy with spiritual gifts. People who mishandle the money God has entrusted to them don't generally faithfully share the gospel or serve in a spirit-filled way in the church. They're linked together. This, is, this truth is clear from Jesus' teaching on the rich fool. And we studied the parable of the rich fool in Luke chapter 16, where he said, therefore, if you've not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you've not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Unrighteous mammon, unrighteous wealth, because all money in one sense is dirty, it's tainted, uh, and we'll talk about that as we work through this course. But if you're not faithful in the use of the money that God has put in your pocket, then God limits other riches and other spiritual areas that he entrusts to you. This, this is so important. He re, that's why, by the way, half the parables of Christ deal with the subject of money. I don't think that's by accident. He repeated the principle in the Sermon on the Mount when he stated, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So this is an important reminder because if our usefulness in God's kingdom is indexed not to how much we have, but how well we use what we have, then we want to prove to be faithful stewards of God's resources. So again, we read, to one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, each according to his own ability, and he went on his journey. Now, it's important to note that when the master gave to one five talents, to another two, and to another one, we're told that his servants were giving these differing amounts of money, each according to his own ability. That's important. While a person's own ability can certainly be influenced by many factors, including the way they were raised, uh, the way you're raised, the country people are born in, the opportunities that were availed to them, we can be sure that God will deal justly and fairly with each. Certainly, if five talents were given to a person with minimal ability, he might potentially be destroyed by the heavy responsibility. Sometimes we think we'd like more, but it would be crushing to us. And God is so wise. On the other hand, if only just one talent were given to a man of greater ability, he might be under-challenged and possibly even discredited and degraded. The fact that he gave to one of his servants just one talent should not be minimized because even one talent was not an insignificant sum. As I said, one talent was worth, this is a silver talent, not a gold, it was worth 20 years of wages. Certainly, number 24, 
page 59. Certainly, the other two servants received more, but each of the three slaves received something, and each of them received a large amount. So let's not minimize that. Each of them received a large amount. As we studied in section one, if you were here for the study on stewardship, the nature of stewardship is accountability. And so the focus of this parable deals with our accountability when Christ returns. And that becomes apparent as we pick it up here in verse 16 of chapter 25 of Matthew. Immediately, the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. Currently, we are living in the period of time between Matthew 25, 18 and verse 19. So he gives these varying amounts. And right now, after a long time, the master is gone, but he's coming back. So we're in between those two verses. As God has assigned varying degrees of resources to each of us, and someday soon, Jesus will return and we will give an account of our stewardship. Many passages, of course, teach that. 2 Corinthians 5, one of the central passages that deal with the believer's judgment. This and certainly 1 Corinthians 3 and Romans 14 would be three central passages. You will hear, by the way, that term, a central passage. And when pastors and theologues and others, um, academics use the term, they're, they're talking about a, a passage that is, is critical to a doctrinal truth. So there are many passages that teach about accountability and rewards and so forth, but the central passages would certainly be 2 Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians 3, and Romans 14. Here it says, for we must all appear before the bema. Uh, we translated here judgment seat. A judgment seat could have a negative role or a positive role. Um, Jesus stood before the bema of Pilate. And of course, he was condemned there. It was also used positively in the Isthmian games. And I think that's what's in view here, where um, there would be judges that would stand on a platform. We were in Philippi. Some of you went with me on the footsteps of Paul tour years ago. And we stood in Philippi in the very Bema that was there in the day of Paul. And it's just an elevated platform, usually made out of stone, almost always. We stood at the same one in Corinth, right in the very place where the Apostle Paul stood himself. And in the Isthmian games, they would watch the athletes run. And if you were successful, you received a wreath. If you lost, you weren't beaten or stoned. You just didn't receive a wreath. And so the, the focus of the judgment seat of Christ is not punishment, it's reward. Because clearly, the punishment for our sin has been dealt with entirely through the substitutionary atonement. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. There's good stewards, there's bad stewards. There are those whose thoughts and actions are governed by the scripture and others whose thoughts and actions are governed by the world system. And in the financial realm, I think that's probably where most Christians are living. They're just moving with the culture. If you lived in the United States 75 years ago, even if you weren't a Christian, you had much more of a Judeo-Christian ethic in the realm of money, no longer in America today. Christ in this parable goes on to describe the coming accountability. The coming accountability. Let's pick it up here in verse 19. Now, after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Also, the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I've gained two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. 
Now the two slaves entrusted with five talents and two talents respectfully began to put their money to use for their master. And so they were both able to double their master's resources. That was a good thing. If these servants were going to be evaluated as a group, you might conclude they did very well because eight talents were given and 15 talents were returned, right? But the evaluation that we will someday give in heaven for the resources God has entrusted to us will be done on an individual basis. For God says in Romans 14, 12, so then each one of us individually will give an account of himself to God. Turn the page. The master, number 31, the master judged each servant individually, and each one was judged on their individual faithfulness and effort, just as we will be someday. And a good illustration of that is 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 15, which, of course, deals with leaders in the church. What kind of ministry are they building? Is it a ministry that is based on worldly principles, or is it a ministry based on the Word of God? What kind of building materials are you using? That's the focus of that passage. And there are many, unfortunately, very foolish pastors. Paul would call them foolish in the early chapters of Corinthians because they are using something other than the Word of God on which to build their ministry. And while it may look very impressive and very large, it's nothing but wood, hay, and stubble. And listen, at the judgment seat of Christ, I'd rather have a handful of gold, silver, and precious stones and a truckload of wood, hay, and stubble, because each man's work will be tested by fire, and their fire itself will test the quality of every man's work. God's interested in quantity, but beyond quantity, He's interested in quality, why you do, how you do, what you do. But the principle applies to every Christian. In either case, we're all going to give an account for how we have used our resources and what God entrusted. He will ask what you did. God will not ask you what your church did. God will ask what you did. Now, what you did in the confines of a local church is obviously important because that's the primary place God calls us to serve. He doesn't call us primarily serving community Bible study or the Gideons or all these other organizations. They have their place. They have their role. God's primary focus is the local assembly, and that's where we need to invest our lives. Two of the servants traded the money and trusted to them with both making a profit in some way. What they did was a demonstration of their faithfulness, which the Apostle Paul said is the essence of good stewardship. He said that in 1 Corinthians 4.2. Now, what is sought in stewards is that one be found faithful. The fact that the Lord commends two of the slaves with the words, well done, good and faithful slave, tells us that God places a premium on character. And character, of course, comes from being spirit-filled. And that's why God is interested in the quality of your work. Two people could perform the same task, and it could be as something as simple as coming here for a church work day, and one is spirit-filled and the other is not. And so one, because of his character being expressed during that time, is storing up wood, hay, and stubble. The other is storing up gold, silver, and precious stones. And by the way, God does not separate out the spiritual from the unspiritual. We think he does. We think, well, you know, certainly spiritual work that God rewards. Well, there are certainly uh, tasks that if we are walking with God, we'll be engaged and we'll want to use our spiritual gift in the local church. We'll want to faithfully share the gospel. But God looks at all work. God talks about slaves giving an account to their master in heaven. And he reminds masters not to treat their slaves unfairly because they too have a master in heaven. And of course, slaves in the first century could be a physician. A physician could be a slave. A teacher could be a slave. When Rome captured a country, they basically didn't put everyone in jail, but they assigned people to homes. And that's why a Christian 
could have a slave working underneath him. But the point is, is that uh, that work that they did was evaluated. So all work is spiritual. Maybe you're a mom and you're changing diapers during the day and you're washing the dishes and you're vacuuming the rugs and you're a home worker. That's valuable work if it's done in the spirit. What we're talking about here is character. And God is interested in character. The master, 34, does not say, well done, good and brilliant servant. For just maybe the slave never shone at all before those who look for glare and glitter. Maybe he didn't shine in that way. For that matter, neither does he say, well done, good, great and distinguished servant. Because it's very possible that no one knew of him but his master. In fact, I would say that probably most of the rewards in the kingdom of God will be given to people that absolutely nobody knew. People who work in quiet, sometimes even lonely places, but God sees everything that is done. The fact that the master commends to the slaves with the words, well done, good and faithful slave, tells us that God is not looking first for a specific amount of money, but for the character qualities of goodness and faithfulness. That's where he puts the premium. I've told more than one young pastor that it is better to be faithful in a small church where no one has ever heard your name than to be well-known and liked in a huge church, all the while leading people away from the truth of the Bible. I interface with pastors almost on a weekly basis because they call me or contact me through the Search the Scriptures ministry. And some of them are very discouraged. And they're in some, you know, one red light town. I said, listen, what you're doing in that one red light town is just as important to God as a man who's in the city of Atlanta who has a 10 million radius of people within within his church. It's no difference. And God doesn't think less of the people in the one stoplight town than he does of the pastor who serves in the city of 10 million. So no, you're never going to have a mega church, not in a one stoplight town. But what you're doing is not insignificant. It's important for the kingdom of God. And that's a truth that you need to let reverberate in your soul in this day of Christian stardom because it's sickening to God. What is happening in evangelicalism, I think, makes God nauseated. Both of these slaves because of the manner in which they demonstrated their faithfulness in the use of their master's material wealth, are told to enter into the joy of your master, for Jesus will share his joy with us in his kingdom. Enter into the joy of your master. We're going to share his joy. We're we're actually going to reign with him as we'll be studying in the Revelation. Sadly, the third slave was unwilling to work the talent that monetary sum his master had given to him. So he played it safe by simply burying his talent in the ground. We read, and the one who had been, the one also who had received the one talent came and said, Master, I knew you were you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. Many Christians today make excuses because they fail to believe God, thinking that their tithe is so small or that their service is so insignificant that they do not need to give or serve because their contribution is not really not needed. This faithless servant seemed almost proud of himself when he responded, see, you have what is yours when he only displeased his master. If this slave really thought he did not have the skill to invest personally for his master, he could have at least joined in what others were doing by linking his capital with theirs and at least gained some interest for his master. 
While Christ wants to instruct Christians from this man's poor example, it is clear that his total lack of faithfulness demonstrated that he was lost. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't lessons that we can learn from this lost man. If you remember, we studied it earlier, the parable of the unrighteous steward. And uh, he, he goes through of what a lousy steward he was, what a shrewd steward he was. And then Jesus applies it to the church. And he reminds us how we should live in light of that. Likewise, when he deals with the hoarder in uh, Luke's gospel and the guy who built larger barns and tore down the old barns so he could, you know, put all his stuff together. And he demonstrates through the parable that the man was rich towards himself but not towards God. And the, the day he retires, he dies, and God calls him a fool because he had invested in the temporal and the process ignored the eternal. And then he said to his disciples, for this reason, for what reason? Because what I just taught you about the rich fool... For this reason, he says in Luke 12, 22, I say to you, do not worry about your life. So here's how you should apply it. So when Jesus is describing this, it's with a view towards you and me because the guy who probably, re you know, who, who's in this situation, he's never going to even read this. He's writing this for our benefit. So anyway, verse 26, but his master answered and said to him, you wicked, lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there, shall be, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now the charge, number 44, against this lost servant who merely buried his talent was that he was wicked and lazy, as seen by the fact that he did not know his master's heart and was not really interested and concerned about his master's kingdom. And that's what most lost people are. They're TLO people. This life only. That's what they're about. This life only. My life, my house, my cars, my junk. It's all about me and not the kingdom of God. This man's life, summed up by his own self-centeredness as wicked and lazy, demonstrated that he was not a true servant of his master but lost. And so it is only fitting that he and others like him be cast forever away from the master. And of course, the imagery here is used elsewhere, as most of you know, in the New Testament to describe the eternal place of judgment. What a contrast with the other two slaves who seemed to have a sense of excitement in reporting to their master whom they loved and wanted to give an account to. Just by the words that they spoke showed that there was a sense of heaven in their destiny. Well, by the words the third servant gave, a sense of hell in his destiny. I mean, think about it. Two of these guys come and they're excited. <laughs> you know, Lord, look, look, look what you gave me and look, look, look what happened. There's a sense of excitement because they're serving the king. Or the other guy, he he certainly, by his words, has a sense of hell and his destiny. All these excuses, you're a harsh person, you're this, you're that, da-da-da-da-da. Most people today, of course, rarely see laziness as a sin. By the way, we'll deal with this a little bit further in the course, but one reason some people have trouble with finances is because they're lazy. They do not have a work ethic. And part of our responsibility as fathers, and for some of us as grandfathers, is to teach our children how to work hard. Some moms have to do that as single moms. But we need to teach them how to work, how to sweat. Kids don't know how to do that anymore. They know how to work the thumbs in a video game, but they don't know how to pick up a shovel and dig a ditch. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Most people rarely today see laziness as a sin, 
and something that must be repented of before the Lord. But once again, since this man's stewardship reveals his heart, for his lack of interest in the handling of the talent reveals that he was a lazy person. There's often a correlation between hard work and good stewardship because those who watch over what God has entrusted to them tend to be hard workers. You know, one of my concerns is that 40% of the millennials that were surveyed last month by Gallup said that they were in favor of socialism. Socialism, you know, among other things, is basically the government taking care of you. That's the worst thing in the world for a person's character, for their work ethic, where the government gives people everything. That's not the role of government. The role of government is to protect us against evil and to praise good. It's to have police, it's to have military, it's not to give us all these benefits. But this younger generation has a mindset, I don't want to pay for my college education. Well, who do you think is going to pay for it? The government. Where are they going to get their money from? From people who work hard and are being taxed. We're digging our own grave with the mindset that many in Generation Z and millennials right now have. It's, it's pretty sobering. From this parable, we can draw several other biblical principles on stewardship. Let's think our way through this. Several other biblical principles. For one, God has entrusted to each one of us varying degrees of talents or financial resources according to our ability. And if we exercise good stewardship, he may choose to multiply our resources for our investing in his work. And certainly that principle is brought out in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And there the apostle Paul writes, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for what reason? For sowing, increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. In other words, Paul is saying you're faithful and the resources God has given you, and these were Corinthians who were investing it in the kingdom, and what did God do? He gave them more resources. Why? So they could give more. It's a principle where God multiplies good stewardship. It's important to note, number 52, that God held each slave accountable for the talents he gave to them, just like God will hold us accountable for resources he has placed in our hands. The question is not what I would do if I have a million dollars in the bank. The question is, what am I doing with $100 that God has put in my pocket? See, we're always looking, oh, if I just had this, and no, no, no. It starts with what God has entrusted to us, what he has placed in our hands. The master still owned the talents, while the servants were simply stewards of what he had given to them. And we spent a whole section on that. That was section one of this course on stewardship. The servants were simply stewards of what had given to them, just as we are of the possessions that God has given to us. Once again, just as Jesus also taught in Luke 16, 10, the real issue is not how much each one received, but what they did with what they did receive. He who is faithful and a very little thing is faithful also in much. What's the very little thing that he is talking about contextually? Money. If you're faithful in a very little thing, money, then you'll be faithful in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Again, there's a correlation in every realm of spiritual living. By contrast, the two faithful stewards went and traded, those are the words used, with the resources God entrusted to them, showing by their direct action they felt accountability to their master, and no doubt because they revered him and wanted to please him. We are not told how they traded with their talents. Perhaps they loaned the money at interest. 
Perhaps they used the money and bought things and sold them for more money. In either case, they had gained more by their use. They gained more by the way they used what they had. By contrast, the third servant did almost nothing with his master's money. Granted, he took some care that it would not be lost by hiding it, but he did nothing positive with his master's money. And as we work through this section on saving, the focus of saving is one, to prepare us for the future, for things that might distract us from the work of the kingdom, to keep us out of debt. There's going to be a number of things that we will look at. And again, sometimes people are so consumed with their money problems their spare time thoughts are not in the advancement of the kingdom, but their money problems. And those money problems are usually generated by the fact that they are living in the world's economy and not God's. But one function of savings, as we're going to learn in this section of the course, is to increase them so that they might be used for the kingdom. The time frame of this accountability is described as after a long time. I think those words are very significant, and they, they pop off the page of Scripture for me. The time frame is after a long time, which is significant, because the long delay would tempt the servants to think that they would never give an account for their management, yet each one did. By the way, that's the focus of, a, of evolution. They want you to think that there's no accountability to God, that we've been here. I heard some guy on the radio that he said 13.8 billion years. I wanted to yell through the radio, why wasn't it 13.9 billion? Why wasn't it 22.6 billion? He was real sure, 13.8 billion years. Well, let's take him at his number. See, Satan wants people to think that we've been here forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, and that God's not really involved in the creation, that he's out there, kind of a deist kind of God, he set it into motion, then he just sits back and lets it all play out, even if they have a view of God. But the evolutionist who starts with the premise, there is no God, so he comes up with the best way in which he can, you know, adapt to how we got this world. And then the foolish Christian who embraces theistic evolution, who says, well, God used the process. They're, they're guilty of the same thing. They are saying that we've been here for billions of years and that there's no real accountability. But if the Jewish people are right, and they say, if you ask a Jew what date it is, it's just under 6,000 years. And by the way, there is no recorded history beyond 6,000 years, zero, none, zippo. Unless you want to take some cave drawing and say, yeah, that's 100 million years old. See, we think after a long time, no real accountability. And that's just one of Satan's strategy. But there is payday someday, not just for the unbeliever, but for the Christian who will give an account. Number 60. By the way, Jesus never uses an illustration that has an error or an untruth or some sinful activity that someone might assume he should emulate. That's important. The sinless Son of God only used truth in order to teach truth. Why is that significant for this? Well, for those Christians who say that it is immoral to use banks, and I've had people tell me that. I even had someone call up on the Bible line some years ago and said, mm, yeah. you know, why should we use a bank? Because they're loaning money to Planned Parenthood who's building the local abortion clinic, and it's all dirty money. I could take every dollar in your wallet and say, oh, yeah, that dollar, that, came, that was in the liquor store last month, and this dollar over here was, you know, you could trace it all. That's why Jesus just wholesalely says it's unrighteous mammon. Now, that's not to say that, you know, obviously, if a bank is all excited about underwriting Planned Parenthood and I have another choice, I might want to use another bank. But look, it, it's all dirty wherever you go. And so some Christians assume, well, then I shouldn't put my money in a bank. I've had people tell me that. They need to take note that at least the slave 
could have saved his master's money in the bank so that his master could have at least received money back with interest. He could have worked the money for the kingdom. This parable certainly illustrates that Christ is not against using banks, but more importantly, that idleness of the possessions that God has given us is sin. If there was something evil about saving, or if there was something wrong about using a bank, then the Lord never would have used this kind of illustration. By the way, there's a lot of truths that are found in the parables of Christ that aren't directly addressed maybe in other passages of Scripture. But because the one who is the truth only uses truth to teach truth, there's much that we can often learn and apply. Again, every illustration that Christ uses is truthful in order to teach us the truth. In the larger context of Matthew chapter 25 here in the Olivet Discourse, the main point of this parable is clear, and it is that our readiness for Jesus' return can easily be seen by the stewardship of the resources that God has entrusted to each of us. Again, I think it's very significant that he uses money here when he talks about his return from heaven because of the way God links our whole life to, to money. It's sobering, and it forces each one of us, myself included, how am I using what God has entrusted to me? Being ready for Christ's return from heaven is not an abstract, is not as abstract as some make it. For this parable reminds us that our use of God's money as stewards, right down to how we might even save in a bank, can show just how ready we really are. It can be a sobering lesson to consider that even the sins of omission, that is those things that we do not do, can ultimately be even more dangerous than the sins of commission, those things that we do do. Before we have finished this section on saving, as this parable highlights, what Jesus regards as faithfulness involves using what God has entrusted to us in order to advance his interest in the world today. That's a poorly worded sentence, sorry. Sometimes these, I, you know, I, I was up last night till 11 o'clock writing this. This whole course is being rewritten, and then I finished it between appointments today. Um, but here's the point I'm trying to make here in number 69. The focus of this parable is that God is interested in your faithfulness as a steward, and that is seen in how you are using the talents, the monetary means that he has given you, whether it's large or small, in order to advance his interests in the kingdom of God. Now, it might be you say, well, I'm advancing my interests when I save. Not if you're a spirit-filled Christian. Maybe you're you have an emergency account so that if the transmission breaks this week, you're not all frazzled like it's going to cost $2,200 to fix the transmission. But because you had an emergency savings account, which we will discuss next time, uh, you're able to pay the debt without going into debt, and your free time thoughts, again, are focused on the advancement of the kingdom. But there's a lot of Christians, they live their whole life with trouble, and they think, if I just had more money, and that's really not the answer. It's how we're using what God has entrusted to us. We're going to learn that those who are unwise and save nothing often will get entangled with debt and will only be distracted from advancing Christ's kingdom.